0: I'd like to welcome our sponsor FormAssembly. You can find out how FormAssembly helps streamline remote work processes in the free ebook that we've linked in today's show notes. FormAssembly's all-in-one web form platform lets you create forms for just about any use case, from contact forms to donation forms, all while taking advantage of useful features such as notifications, e-signatures, and more. Not only that, but you can also connect data to systems you already use. FormAssembly integrates with Salesforce, PodOut, PayPal, and many other common solutions. Whatever your data collection needs are, you can be sure that FormAssembly keeps your data secure with encryption at rest and in transit on all plans, plus compliance with GDPR, CCPA, and more regulations. At the end of the day, Form Assembly helps you save time, money and effort while getting the maximum benefit out of the data you collect. And I remind you, when you support our sponsors, you support the show.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Xi This is yet a new episode of Salesforce Web Podcast. Today, i got a wonderful guest with me from Salesforce. His name's Peter Chittum. Hello. Hello, Peter. Hey, Xi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, Peter, why wouldn't you introduce yourself?
2: Sure thing. So, I'm Peter Chittum. I lead the developer evangelist team for... North America and EMEA for Salesforce. Uh, I'm also a developer evangelist, so the role is a player coach kind of role. I'm still a developer. I still write code, still share that with people. I just also have a team to run.
1: Mm. So your team is across North America and EMEA? Yeah, that's right.
2: So there's five developer evangelists who are um, on the team, two in also in EMEA, and three in the U.S., is
1: Philippe Otzi part of your team?
2: Yeah, Philippe is... Uh, he was on your podcast a few months ago, right? <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes. Talking about the Lightning Web Component.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was a good, mm. was a good show. Oh, thanks.
1: So we have you to hear your story around your career path. It was really interesting when you shared a bit uh, your story with me, and I think it, it would be a wonderful topic for us to just talk and then share with all the listeners as well. I understand you... St- At the early stage, you programming language was like Java, am I right, like object-oriented? Or how did it all start?
2: Yeah, actually, backing up even before that is probably helpful in understanding my background because I didn't study computer science. You could say that I I happened into the career. I, I had worked with computers for a long time and around the time of the sort of early internet era, I was looking around for work and all of the sudden there were loads of jobs working with computers. So I managed to find my way in and my first programming language that I actually used properly was Visual Basic, in fact, specifically (laughs) VBA for apps. So as part of actually a tech support job I was doing, I would write VBA macros to help analyze data that would help troubleshoot what was going wrong with certain clients' problems and that sort of thing. And eventually, I started working for a CRM company. Initially, they were using Microsoft Stack, the really early MSMQ, year 2000, 1999 era MSMQ. And then they ported their entire CRM functionality into J2EE around 2002, 2003, early J2EE stuff. And that's really where I would say I kind of went from dabbling maybe <laughs> in, in programming to actually really feeling like I was a developer for the first time.
1: Ah, uh, Yeah, I had, because um, in my early career time, in the first five years, I wasn't a programmer at all. My task is really just to tweak around the code, adding some if-else here and there, fixing some minor bugs. So I couldn't consider myself as a programmer either. So I joined the Salesforce ecosystem. Okay. So for you, what was your background uh, in the college?
2: So I took a degree in theater and French. So nothing to do with anything technical at all. And sometimes I I even joke about how I, I took one maths class my entire time at university so I, I often feel like I'm playing catch up when it comes to like really thinking out of like a mathematically complex programming problem. But, you know, I make do.
1: Do you still get the chance to use those um, skills?
2: Well, well since, since, uh, since my job is developer evangelist and I share a lot in front of people, I would say that you know, I use those presentation skills frequently and often. I think I share a lot of, with people. I've I've helped other people prepare their talks and so being able to share with people how to have a stage presence and how to get beyond the technical content but to really communicate and connect with people I think is a big obstacle for technical people who are going into presentation and so I definitely feel like I bring I bring stuff to the table there and the f- the French part has helped as well because, uh, well, actually, until I hired Philippe, I was the French speaker on the developer evangelist team, so <laughs> I, I've, I've spoken a lot in French. In fact, the first time I delivered a keynote for one of our community conferences was at North Africa Dreaming. That was in French. And tonight, I'm actually sharing for the Morocco, the Casablanca developer group, and okay. I will probably deliver most of that in French as well. <laughs>
1: that's, that's so good, you so, know your skill.
2: <laughs> it's come in handy.
1: So you mentioned at the early stage, you J J2 ee So that's the, the time you start to use Java, am I right? And then you kind of uh, shifted to Apex, I would assume? Since you joined the Salesforce?
2: Yeah, exactly. So I actually worked with that CRM software for six years. I then worked for a company that built a JVM application performance management tool called Intrascope. and that was really interesting getting to understand the JVM from the inside out and not just understanding how the code worked but how well the code worked
1: that's interesting that's really like a lower layer things how the JVM works
2: yeah for sure so that was that was really. Helpful. I went back to that same company when I moved here to the UK, or that same software, I should say, they had been acquired at that time. But yeah, when I joined Salesforce in 2010, I kind of shifted all of my development into Apex and Visual Force at the time, of course, and that's really where I I would say it like that. It was a transformational time in my career as well, moving from something that really had a big sort of open source ecosystem about it into something that you know I like to think about about Apex as a as a domain specific language, and to see the difference that that made in developer productivity and being able to make certain things happen that when I was dealing with in the J two E application, there was a lot more blocking and tackling that had to take place to to make that work.
1: Is there a separation between like the front end evangelist and the back end evangelist in Salesforce?
2: No, we're too small of a team to really be able to be afforded that, I would say.
1: Okay. So you need to have both skills.
2: Yeah. We really need to have folks who can stand up and be competent. And share all up and down the Salesforce stack.
1: I watched some of your recent uh, presentations in YouTube. It's about learning Web Components. So, what's the um, kind of shifting? I don't know. Do you have the mindset shifting from the OO to the JavaScript? Because to me, it's hard. JavaScript is hard.
2: Definitely, if you know, in going from an imperative, object-oriented programming language. Moving also from the kind of heavy UI framework that is the server side compiled UI framework of the early 2000s. I found those, those frameworks to be really like positive to work with on the one hand from the standpoint of you know from what it would take to actually stand up an enterprise application without that it would just be mind boggling and then you know with visual force it was so tightly coupled with apex the amount of thinking that had to be done about what the browser was going to do when you did something was so minimal it kind of abstracted away the browser in a way that i think really really worked well at the time and, you know, when I first joined Salesforce, I spent a lot of energy kind of really getting to understand the the nature of the APEX object-oriented model and the ways that that differed a little bit from other object-oriented models or, you know, also the ways that it was similar. But most of the effort was really around APEX and then you know visual force was just kind of this layer that you put on top of it and if you understood how to properly structure an apex controller getting your visual force page to work wasn't that hard there were certainly plenty of things that were exposed through that i think the most important thing about that was understanding that at that time what you were writing down as a tag what was going to be out in the browser of course there was this whole process that went place that took place to to parse that render it and Turn it into something that the browser actually would understand, but that was incredibly powerful because you could produce some fairly complex user interfaces, really highly customized, without really spending a lot of time on the the nitty gritty of all the little details that that the browser had to understand to make that happen.
1: It was in my kind of world, it's like it's wrapped in those components. You can even create your own custom component. And in the early days of JavaScript, it was also kind of messy and chaotic since the browser standards are different. But nowadays, I think it's getting so much better for all the frameworks, not just the Lightning Web Component, and also the browser standards. It's getting so much better.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. The I think the browser wars were a huge factor in. I don't know, it's hard to say. Were the frameworks a response to the browser wars themselves or were the browser wars, like, did they trigger the, you know, I don't know, it's, which came first is probably really hard. And it's something that's now in the annals of history. But certainly a lot of those frameworks were dependent on certain browsers, more often than not, Internet Explorer, just because of how Microsoft had dominated the business-based IT space. So, yeah, like that, the, you know, that CRM company I worked for before, that their UI framework was like 100% dependent on the customer had to have IE6. And if they weren't using IE6, then they didn't get to play. And customers were okay with that. Like that was just, that was, those were the rules of the game then. And I think there were a lot of things that happened over the course of that time. Certainly, the evolution of frameworks that were trying to abstract away the differences between browsers, like when jQuery came about, when Node.js was born. Um, and actually, as I understand it, I think a, a big thing that really matured JavaScript and made people think start to, to think they should take it seriously was Google creating Google Maps. And for the first time, there was this super... I mean, I remember how magical Google Maps felt when I first opened it up. And, and looked at it.
1: I didn't have that experience. Mine was um, like a Gmail. It was, uh-huh. wow.
2: Yeah. Hmm. But that, that's what I, what I understood. Um, I forgot which podcast I heard this on, but there was, for the first time, people were like, oh, that JavaScript thing can actually do something pretty amazing. So then jQuery, Node.js kind of brings it into, uh, into um, the world of the server. You know, And then here we are today, where it's hard to imagine just how hard it was to get a consistent JavaScript API between two browser manufacturers back in 2001, 2002, 2003.
1: How did you start to touch JavaScript? Was it because you need to learn Lightning Web Components?
2: No, actually. So my first exposure to JavaScript was, weirdly enough, a server-side JavaScript engine This was a little inbound marketing engine that essentially used JavaScript as the way for a developer to customize the tools that would be used for a marketing department. I mean, think about all the advertisements that we see on the web. You know, those were a brand new thing in the early 2000s. And people wanted an engine to be able to not just serve up uh, an advertisement, but to do it in a way that was dynamic and responded to the user. And, you know, these were things that were kind of new at that time. So it was before Node.js? This is pre-Node.js. And I've always meant to go back and I'm sure I could find out what engine it was, but it was JavaScript on the server side. And so you know, I had already started to learn Java. And at the time, it just didn't really dawn on me how different they really were. So I worked with that tool. And then I walked away from JavaScript for a long, long time. When I first started to pick up JavaScript... The second time was right after I joined the developer evangelist team here at Salesforce, and at that time, Visual Force had started to make available much more granular and fine-grained control of what parts of the Visual Force page the rendering engine would decide to touch or not. So, when I first joined Salesforce, Visual Force owned kind of the the whole DOM, and if you wanted to if you wanted a custom head section, you sort of had to make do with whatever Visualforce was going to put in there and whatever else you wanted. If you didn't want the Salesforce style sheets too bad, I mean there were like all of these things that you know the at its inception, Visual Force made an assumption, which was, of course, our developers in the ecosystem want to reproduce a user interface that looks just like Salesforce. And so the framework made that assumption, it built that assumption into how pages would be would be made. So a couple years later, the with the rise of jQuery, the rise of things like Ember and Backbone and you know more and more customization, you know nicer feeling user interfaces, the evolution of JavaScript people wanted their own JavaScript skin, their own rendering engine, really, on top of what Salesforce was serving them, which was at the time Visualforce, of course. So Visualforce started to add controls where you could exclude the the Salesforce style sheets. You could control the entire rendering of the page or the head and the body yourself. And so that was right at the time I joined the developer evangelist team. And we built this whole project around... We called them mobile templates. And so there were there were projects on essentially, it was a way to show how you could take something like Angular or Backbone or jQuery. you could use that as the engine for presenting the user interface and then use a mobile CSS library on top of that so that you could have a mobile user interface served directly from Salesforce via Visual Force. Or you could even potentially have something like Node.js server that had the same skin on top of it that was then integrated with Salesforce, for instance. And that was really when I started to get back into JavaScript.
1: And uh, Peter, I understand you also touched some functional programming language as well in the back. Yeah. What was that experience? How you know it's like a different paradigm. It's always interesting to hear what did the people's experience and thoughts
2: yeah at this time my initial exposure this was like a month or two into being on the developer evangelist team my initial experience was like i chose to do something with uh, angular at the time so that, you know I, I built a little like a sort of a handheld mobile device type of application where you could be standing at a booth and like going through kind of a decision Tree and then you know give somebody an offer kind of thing. So I built that. Um, you, it was basically Visual Force with Angular, and I just about eked it out and got it posted into this mobile apps gallery that uh, that we were building as a bunch of reference apps for you know how do you build mobile user interfaces using Visual Force? And I realized how painful it was because I didn't really understand what I was doing. I mean, Angular was great from the standpoint of you could pretty much understand how to build your Angular user interface with the, you know, how the router would work, you know, where your views would go. And if you just did the, you know, if you sort of change the right things in a template, you could kind of have an Angular user interface. But that wasn't really satisfying from understanding what I was doing. So I started to spend more time just trying to understand JavaScript, the language and JavaScript, the platform. I, one book that I read that I think you know is really widely recognized as a kind of a a game changing work in for JavaScript was JavaScript the Good Parts and uh, that was really useful to understand like you know why I should be doing certain things and why I shouldn't be doing certain things. I read a book on functional JavaScript was which was essentially a, a functional library on top of JavaScript and. I was also starting to attend more developer conferences outside of just the Salesforce ecosystem. And at one of these conferences, I just I happened to have a conversation with somebody who introduced me to Erlang and at the same time, you know, in one sentence, completely intrigued me with it, but also really put me off <laughs> um, wanting to ever write Erlang myself, you know, by describing it as a very syntactically complex language. And so, you know, I at the same time I was really fascinated because here is a language and a platform that is designed for a distributed architecture, which is more and more what the internet was becoming at the time. And then really soon after that, I was introduced to Elixir, which is a second language that sits on top of the BEAM virtual machine that came with Erlang and this idea of a something that's more syntactically sugary really attracted me. So I spent some time getting to know Erlang at that point. Oh, sorry, um, Elixir at that point.
1: For the listeners who don't know much about Erlang, it's a functional programming language, and uh, it has its own virtual machine as well. If I understand, it's similar to to Java has its own.
2: Yeah. So the Erlang mm-hmm. virtual machine is called the Beam virtual machine, and then. Built into Beam is a completely different method of concurrency and a, a set of primitives in the language that make distributed architecture almost invisible to the developer. So if I'm going to make a distributed, make a, an, an API call, for instance, to some other machine somewhere on the internet or somewhere on my network I need to know everything about where that thing is and uh, its address I need to you know know the right protocol to reach that thing and then I need to know the right way to call it and the way that that beam works is that there's something that's called a process which actually lives differently from an operating system process and when that process starts up, where it starts up doesn't really matter. If you just tell it to join another process, they become a little process cluster and they can send each other messages, whether they are on the same machine, on two different virtual machines, or two different physical machines on different parts of the planet. So it it makes having a distributed architecture much more transparent. So that was what intrigued me technically (laughs) about it. But that wasn't actually what I would say I took most from learning Elixir. What I probably took most from that is a better understanding of functional programming paradigms and then how to take some of those things that I learned into JavaScript.
1: Exactly. The big hurdle for people like me is that we're writing too much uh, object-oriented Now shifting to JavaScript, everything we're using for loop, we're using a class, you know, stuff. So it doesn't feel functional at all, even though it works. But uh, that's kind of like a mindset uh, shift we need to do
2: somehow. I think so. And I I think where I see getting to know, you know, any functional language, I, I happen to pick Elixir you know, there are a dozen other ones that are popular and easy to access that I would, you know, if, if somebody's struggling to get their minds around what they're doing w- with JavaScript, go spend a while swimming in a purely functional pool, swimming pool, and you'll start to, you know, I think, understand things a little bit better, especially, you know, just getting my head around first order functions, particularly the first time I saw a function passed. By another function in JavaScript, it completely blew my mind. I I didn't know what I was doing, but I just sort of was like following the recipe. And so I like, okay, I'll do that, but I don't really get what's going on. You know, eventually learning that what you're doing when you're doing that is you're, you know, you're passing this off to some other process to do something with that you can now forget about that. And then understanding underneath that, the structure of the JavaScript runtime and how, you know, if, if that thing is executed asynchronously, it just gets put, you know, in a queue to wait for the next cycle that is available. And then it will execute eventually as well. And I think that those are all things that really, you know, that very much fit in with how uh, a functional programming model works where, you know, I'm going to execute this function, I'm going to pass this function that, you know, something inside that other function will execute for me. Like, those are all things that come right out of functional programming.
1: In the past, I had a conversation with people outside of Salesforce. In this podcast, we talk about the Haskell, we talk about the closure. So those are like pure function languages and really popular and really engaging people from the community point of view. So if our listeners are interested, they definitely go back to listen to those episodes as well. Interested in asking, I don't know if it's um, a confidential or not, is Salesforce happen to, in the roadmap to support some functional programming languages?
2: Um, well, I, I don't know of, of any uh, beyond okay. our, you know beyond what we're supporting with JavaScript right now. You know, which can be functional. No, I, I don't. There's nothing that I know of that um, is heading in that direction. And that's part of the reason why you know Elixir ended up being sort of a a an experiment and a learning experience for me. But it's not something that I use today as much as I enjoyed learning what I did.
1: Interesting thing that I noticed that when I talk with the younger generation programmer who started the programming maybe after uh, 2010, that their university education about programming are really pure functions. So they are using Haskell instead of back in my days, it was Java, C, C++. They don't learn those object-oriented anymore. They right away jump into the functional pool which is really, really interesting to me.
2: I think that's probably a healthy thing. You know, certainly when I was learning to program in kind of the late 1990s, early 2000s, when you would pick up an object-oriented programming book or read something about it, being somebody who didn't have the educational experience or, you know, what I would have hoped would have been a more broadly rounded Exposure to different programming models. The way that those books talked about object-oriented programming was sort of like there is no future beyond object-oriented programming. Yeah, like <laughs> we have figured out the right way to program computers forever. Yeah, this, this is, is how the you will do it. <laughs> yes,
1: this is the world. This is the end.
2: And so I, I think it's a really healthy thing that kind of JavaScript came along and exploded that. For real, in, in real practical terms, I don't think you can be working as a developer and not learn some, you know, not be not use JavaScript. Let me say let me say that a little bit differently. A, a minority of developers who can go about their work these days and not learn JavaScript. But so much depends on it. Apart from Lightning Web Components, the, the main way that I use JavaScript today is actually just writing tooling. So it's a really great portable language now that runs everywhere. <laughs> so why wouldn't you, right?
1: So Peter, I understand you have like 50% of time used for manage the team nowadays, am I right?
2: Yeah, that's probably about right.
1: Okay. And the rest of the time is do the doing the evangelist
2: tasks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it, which means that my actual programming time is probably a, a lot less than that. You know, as a, as a role, your developer evangelist. You know, as a developer evangelist, your job is to write code, but that's only the beginning. You know, so once you've written that whatever that class, that user interface, uh, you know that lightning web component, your job is only part done because something is, somewhere in there you've learned something and. Your job is to then go and share what you've learned. So it's if if you teach. haven't, yeah, if you haven't done that last part, then you've really only partly done your job.
1: That's why evangelists do a lot of presentations, to the conference, write the trailhead modules to help people to to get the hands-on more experiences.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Do you now have a uh, imposter syndrome since you didn't write that <laughs> much code anymore? <laughs>
2: So between so when I first when I took up the management position that was about 2016 and 2016 2017 in particular I wasn't writing a lot of code I was I was kind of just doing like barely enough to keep up I would say I was also probably spending more time and energy on what I would say is sort of like coding for you know as experimentation as opposed to coding that somebody could then turn around and use. So like 2016, 2017, were a bit lean. And from that standpoint, from about midway through 2019 onward, there've been more and more opportunities to actually write code that gets shipped out that people use. I mean, most of what we write in developer evangelism, it's not code that's meant to be run in production for our customers. It's code that is written so that other developers can see what we've done and then go and take and learn from that. But if we're doing that right, you know, hopefully that code is as, as real to life as possible. And that does give us a, a lot of um, a lot of experience to go in and share, especially Part of our position is getting access to features and functionality earlier, so that we can kind of prime the pipeline and make sure that there is good content in place when a feature launches, as opposed to like the feature launching and then playing catch up.
1: So, Peter, before I let you go, do you still have something else to add? Boy, I don't know. Like we're it's... probably talking about the twenty years or thirty years of your career journey. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I think I think it's really. It's interesting that you bring up imposter syndrome in the context of having less time to write code. When I saw that in in your notes that you shared with me, I sort of expected that to come up more in the context of my background, you know, not being in computer science. I don't
1: know. I just randomly bring it up. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, yeah. Are meant to be just there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think despite my answer, in spot, imposter syndrome is definitely something that I have struggled with and even to this day struggle with from time to time. And a lot of it does have to do with how much I'm able to spend my time really investing in getting to know the tools that I'm sharing with people. So I do think that's that's something that many many people struggle with imposter syndrome especially if you're going to be standing up and presenting yourself as an expert in something. So the more opportunities you get to be working with that thing but then also to share in and of itself, you come to realize that that's not the most important voice that's going on in your head and you know inevitably somebody has something to learn from what you're going to share. So um, I, th- I think that's probably the most important thing that I take away from imposter syndrome.
1: You know, that's one of the reasons that I so much more enjoy the host role in the podcast instead of the guest, because I'm also a bit afraid that uh, what I'm going to share, you know, I'm not an expert of anything. So,
2: yeah. Cool. Well, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we should have you come and share on the Salesforce podcast. <laughs> maybe five years later, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> Turn the tables a bit. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to uh, mention your name to Josh. Okay, so.
1: okay, that's that's uh, okay. <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Peter. It was great chatting with you.
2: Yeah, so uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed cool. it.
0: I am constantly looking for good guests. If you have any guest recommendation, please reach me out. I'll make sure they are joining to the show to share their knowledge. Otherwise, thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next Thursday.